1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And welcome to the New Statesman Podcast. This week, we talk about whether or not Theresa May really hates Parliament.
0: We discuss Brexit's Nigel Farage problem.
1: And you ask us, should former politicians just leave and shut up? So Stephen, let's talk about Parliament. I know, slightly old-fashioned, remember that? You know, big house, full of people, fire Mm -hmm. hazard. I think there's some really interesting stuff going on this week, which... Sounds probably quite nerdy, but if we can't be nerdy on the New Statesman podcast, where can we be nerdy? Indeed. So first of all, the thing that happens is that, is the select committees, which are a really useful engine of scrutiny for government legislation, for calling in people. You know, they're the people who managed to call in some of the people who caused the financial crisis. They called in, you know, Rupert Murdoch over hacking. You know, they are good places for tough, gritty questions to be asked. The government has awarded itself a majority in them, right? Essentially via well, some sort of f- fandango involving...
0: Well, the more important thing is the bill committees, which is the bit in committee stage when kind of same competition vote on the process of legislation through. And it also does affect some of the allocation on select committees, technically because Parliament is hung and also because of what's happened to the Lib Dems and the SNPs' respective share of the number of MPs. You would expect that to slightly rejig the composition of
1: so the one I saw was as an example. It was like if you had a select committee or whatever, a committee that had five Tories, four Labour, and one SNP. Actually, what the Conservatives really want to do is make that is tip that SNP MP out, right? Yeah. Which always just kind of slightly, just tweaks it slightly in their favour. The other thing is opposition day debates. So there were two opposition day debates on Wednesday. One was put down by uh, Angela Rayner, which was about tuition fees, voting essentially on the rise, I'm going to say, from 9,000 to 9,250. Correct me if I'm wrong. And then the other one was on the NHS pay rise. And this was quite a smart bit of opposition politicking from Rayner. I think you wrote about it in your morning email, right?
0: So with with the Rayner vote, it wasn't a kind of technical, the opposition has been granted... slot she used an arcane procedure to bring a formal vote on something that or the government had already passed with a statutory instrument effectively as a kind of embarrassment technique the opposition is arguing that this is binding and the government has to do something the government is of course arguing that it's not you would assume that the government would unless it massively manages to mess something up which is not inconceivable would win the vote on the principle of whether or not it had to hold it but it is a another sign that Angela Rayner is not unlike some MPs who I won't name is not just a backstory. She's, yeah, you know, she's, you know, hired very well in terms of her team. She does both the kind of art of doing sort of like flashy opposition and also the kind of graft of finding stuff like this to embarrass the government with.
1: But Theresa May's response is fascinating, right? Because she's basically said, kind of, a la Cameron over Syria." I'm well, in that case. I'm taking my ball home. And actually, she said, "I'm not going to whip Tory MPs to attend any of these votes. You can stand there all you like until you're blue in the face, but we're not going to turn up."
0: Boo. Actually, in a vacuum, I... Oh, God, I'm going to be really pro-Tory this week. Ugh. So take the issues in sequence. On the bill committees thing, right, if you can get a majority of people in the House to vote and you have a majority and you deserve to have one in on bill committees, you de facto have a majority, right? It's a fair cop. Labour did it in 76 during their LibLab Lab pact uh, when they had no majority. The Conservatives have done it now with the DUP in both cases because of the party propping them up. Is not large enough for it to have any adv- Like the DUP, with because they only have ten MPs, is not a great beneficiary on there being hung bill committees. There's no leverage for them, so it's something they are very happy to trade away. Ditto the Lib Dems, who had I want to say twelve, but it may be fourteen in in the the seventies, were similarly incentivised not to vote for him.
1: But the DUP were a bit frisky this week because they did vote with Labour on the tuition fees vote,
0: right? Yeah, but that's part of their their sort of standing. But yeah, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm just, uh, yeah, I, I, I will get to that. I won't, I won't. But however, the reason why I would perhaps not have done this were I a Conservative MP is one, I think it's a reasonable ask from the government. However, if I'm a backbencher, why make yourself less influential? That That's never a good idea. But two, it's not inconceivable to imagine a situation where at the next election, Labour gains, you know, Six seats. This thing, you don't you don't need to go crazy for the parliamentary arithmetic suddenly to shift in favour of you know, kind of even the kind of merest of oh it's twelve years, the government you I'm know. quite poor, I would like a pay rise. Yeah, exactly. Even even the kind of like not to sort of reopen the does Labour need one more heave, but actually because of the parliamentary arithmetic you are really talking about the most gentle of erosion. Suddenly you have a Labour government in pat in office with two hundred and seventy seats. I am not convinced that setting the precedent quite so freshly in people's minds and you can go well we're here therefore we're going to vote ourselves a majority at committee stage it will be harder for Labour to do that in that situation because the parties that they would do a deal with the SNP the Lib Dems would have more to lose but let's say and again this feels fairly plausible that all of those SNP Labour marginals just fall to Labour next time because the SNP will have been in office for a long time because Labour can say, look, we're the only ones who can actually beat the Tories nationwide. Labour has 300 seats because they gained six in England and Wales. And then the Lib Dems have got 20. And again, the Lib Dems aren't that incentivised to fight for their committee state rights. It's just yet in another series of ways that the Conservatives are not yet really taking the threat of Labour beating them at all seriously. On the kind of second sort of opposition day debate... That's, again, quite sensible, right? You, you can't win them because the DUP has no incentive to vote with you. The fixed-term Parliament Act means that you can just kind of get up and shrug yourself off. And also, because of the way our system works, there's not a problem with Parliament voting more money, more spending commitments than you want, right? The executive is under no incentive to spend money than Parliament votes. The problem for the executive is it cannot levy taxes or spend money than Parliament has not approved. So there's really nothing to lose and a great deal of risk in, you know, making a big thing about opposition debates. However, and this is the slight weirdness of Theresa May's lack of political nows, what they ought to have done right away after the election is be incredibly generous with opposition debates, day debates. Instead, they've basically halved the total number available if you have no majority opposition day debates are great because they're a day when you can go oh do i have to worry about being beaten on committee stage or you know dominic grieve getting angry no you just go oh opposition day debates Guess we're going to lose that one yes it does increase the opportunities for labor mps to go viral on now hear this or momentum or their own pages giving a speech and then the camera cuts to an empty tory bench however That is going to happen anyway, even on votes the Tories have won. So there's no real harm in slightly increasing the number of opportunities for that to happen, because it only needs to happen once, and it definitely will happen once. What was the third thing?
1: I don't know what the third thing was. The third thing was
0: tuition fee vote, wasn't it?
1: Well, and the NHS pay rise. But yeah, I think the third thing is as well, I just see this as part of... Theresa May's... Well, it was something we talked about before, her slight contempt for democracy. Uh, You know, she has got a pretty wide authoritarian streak, and I think that's of a piece with the Henry VIII powers. I mean, she's definitely somebody who finds you know parliament a bit of an encumbrance particularly i think brexit has given her the opportunity to indulge that even more right to represent anything that isn't just people nodding through what she wants as being unpatriotic and wrecking right yeah she um,
0: she dislikes scrutiny and she clearly bears yeah i mean so there are a couple of examples obviously having a go at the national trust about the nonsense easter egg story uh there's some weird big
1: ben gate that was strange yeah
0: and some people in in the among the commons clerks believe that her involvement in the big ben thing was because they She was angry with them for saying, look, technically you don't get a majority on select committees. Sorry, them's the rules. She had her bell-based revenge. I think one of the things in general is fascinating about this era of conservative politicians is the way none of them have what I would call a healthy relationship with revenge.
1: Well, yeah, I was going to say, we could talk about George Osborne if you want in the context of that, you know, who uh, Ed Caesar's written a profile of for Esquire magazine, I believe, in which someone tells him that George Osborne has been heard to say, I won't rest until she's chopped up in my freezer, which is, you know, it's only reported speech. It's not something he got directly from Osborne, but it's quite in the zone of other things he said about her being a dead woman walking and a zombie prime minister and all this sort of kind of stuff. And I do think there is... Prime beef. I mean, the the accepted version of her sacking him is her saying, "Get to know the party better," right? Which is a pretty brutal cast on somebody and who put so much time into patronage and promotions. And, and she
0: did delight in, um, yeah, in, in briefing that she would sacked him and the manner of his sacking. But I think the thing is, in a way, right? If you're George Osborne, right, you've won, right.
1: Except in a very real sense, you've also lost, in that you lost the EU referendum and therefore your career.
0: But in terms of all of the Cameroons, right, the, the referendum has Ended the career of like, their most deft politician, right? He was unable to bring on his preferred successor or any of the next generation.
1: This is why I always then, see him as the Mandelson of the Tory party, right? Yeah. His incredible brain, but ultimately became kind of toxic and became associated with the thing they didn't want and is now kind of reviled by a large section of his own party.
0: But crucially, the thing with Osborne, right, is that he is probably going to be validated about Brexit.
1: We're not all being, going to be validated about Brexit, Stephen. Not
0: being great. He's earning a huge amount of money, effectively, as far as I can tell, saying to like BlackRock, well, when I was Chancellor, we did a lot of deals, right? I mean, I'm fascinated by what it is that businesses think they are actually receiving when they pay these large sums, but you know, whatever. And he is editing a paper which, while it's politics and not mine, is like quite a good product, Right. Well, he also seems so, to be
1: enjoying it. This is the thing. I think on a day-to-day basis, you said who's getting more enjoyment out of their, you know, it's it's George Osborne sipping his morning cup of tea and eating his breakfast that his assistant has brought to him while he sort of cackles over the leader column versus Theresa May having to look at yet another kind of programme motion.
0: Yeah, I think it's one of those things where it's just like, she's in bags in your freezer, mate. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, like, like you know, like the, the the Cameroon argument about the things that May should not have done or said to win a majority were, were validated in spades, right? You can just see that by like the shift of like the affluent minority vote back to Labour, or you know the loss of the majority, or it's the just, loss
1: of Kensington is yeah. It's just a like one
0: of those things where it's just like you know you've won with Theresa May. I can kind of get why she's you know a bit embittered because let's face it, she's probably got a lock on the like worst prime minister ever rating.
1: Well, well let's return to that in a uh, in a future podcast. <laughs> So, Stephen, you've been to Poland this week and talked Stayed to people... Stayed in Novotel? Yeah, <laughs> which I'm sure they'll be very grateful. Did, did, you did get that for free, no?
0: Well, no, the conference that I was sent to represent the NS4 paid for the hotel. Oh, right, okay. Um, no, Novotel doesn't just... I mean, if I anyone would... from Novotel is listening and is open to providing me free hotels, I'm not going to say no, but as I wonder if stands, you were in the pocket of a big Novotel. Novotel is not... Yeah, I have not signed an independent sponsorship deal with Novotel
1: yet. Okay. But what was the kind of chatter from people who are looking at the Brexit from the European perspective?
0: So the thing I found interesting is it was a conference about populism. I'm a bit dubious for reasons which are we can discuss at another time, the value of the populist label. Because either you narrow it down where you're like, Well, don't you mean something more appropriate like nativist? Or you're kind of sort of going like, well, populism in britain is a when people in small towns vote to leave the eu but also when people in big cities and university towns vote for corbyn and also when theresa may oh so you're a hundred percent of the british political system is populist well if if that's true that can't really that's not really a useful label is it now and that's even before you start going oh how much is it like the government in poland how much is that like trump etc etc how much is that like macron but it was sort of on kind of the rise of populism and the various electoral shocks of 2016 and the thing i found interesting both on the panels i spoke on and at the various meals that we were all shuttled to is you're talking about the brexit referendum and someone said oh you know these things and people you know hadn't really seen i was like you know well look Euroscepticism has always been in my view a wrong-headed idea but a respected part of the political mainstream and the british establishment ian duncan smith and michael howard both of whom could Theoretically, have become prime minister. Were Eurosceptics William Hague and David Cameron both did an awfully good impression of a Eurosceptic for a long time.
1: I wasn't making that face at you, by the way. I was making that face at the thought of Ian Duncan Smith becoming prime minister. No. And right, I it's, be like when you put like salt on a slug. That's kind of how my brain reacted to that idea.
0: But you know, it is entirely plausible, right? Theoretically, he was the guy who could have beaten Tony Blair. Um, but, um,
1: Sorry. Yes, he could have beaten Tony Blair.
0: Mm. Yeah, and and kind of this thing was just like oh, but, you know, like, the the face of Brexit is Nigel Farage. And he's just like...
1: So that's what people were saying to you?
0: Yeah, it was kind of fascinating just to get an insight into how... Obviously, I'm not surprised to learn that Brexit has a reputation problem, right? The government has basically done literally everything wrong since Theresa May took office.
1: And I think that's the case in kind of liberal America as well, right? Because when Trump got elected, I got a lot of American commissions, you know, people saying to me, I ended up writing a piece of New York Times about the view from Brexitland, that they saw Brexit as the forerunner to Trumpism, which I think is a bit un. Unfair on the Brexit vote, but it indicated how people in America thought about it. And I think you have a definite problem with Nigel Farage is that he went over to an AFD rally, didn't he? Whereas Theresa May won't even go and address the European Parliament, although she's now going to talk to people in Florence. I mean, Florence is really nice this time of year, so I can't really hold that against her. But it
0: is just, again, like this weird thing of just like, oh, so you understand the need to, you know, heal and settle, but you're going to... Instead of of
1: addressing all the people you need to address to get that message across, you're going to address a completely baffled, but probably quite happy band of British journalists who are just there for the pizza.
0: And so it was one of those things where I, I, yeah, as I said, I wasn't surprised that Brexit had a reputation problem. I was surprised at the scale. There are two kind of slightly worrying signs in terms of the prospect of a positive outcome or at least a non-catastrophic outcome from the Brexit talks. The first is that this idea that a lot of Eurosceptics seem to have and people go oh you know but the economic damage yada yada even in Poland which is in you know in many ways there's a great deal to lose from Brexit because it will increase the speed of having a two-speed Europe where the Eurozone basically decides and the periphery either opts out or goes along with it but it does not have a lot of freedom mm. other than those those two choices. And obviously, you know, Poland has benefited indirectly a great deal from its access to the British labour market because a lot of people who work here send money back and they return. And so, you know, it's weirdly, despite the fact it's incredibly, politically contentious here, if you asked an economist to drop your ideal model of an immigrant, a young person who comes, is not ill, has no dependents, and then goes home, it's like, wow, you've designed European immigration to Britain since... The accession states. The other sort of interesting thing, I think, in terms of the worrying side is the one thing that people do think is for domestic consumption is this whole we need to walk away from a, a no deal, it would hurt them as much as it would hurt us. That is very much not someone else, and it wasn't just Polish people, it was people from all, all around you. That is very much something that people think is just.
1: Crazy talk. crazy
0: talk, but they also think it's crazy talk for the benefit of their right flank. Which I mean, it would be fair enough if it was crazy talk for the benefit of Theresa May's right flank. I think the difficulty is, is when you have people like Nick Timothy who say what you, you know, say what you like about him, is a pretty good idea of like what the sort of thought within Downing Street and the center of the the project is are going oh we should prepare for a no deal which is just a nonsense scenario there is no such thing as preparing for a no deal people in the nations of the EU do still think and what that means is of course no we're not actually going to prepare for a no deal so I think both the reputational hostility towards Britain is higher than I thought and the awareness of some of the delusions of the current government's Opinions about EU UK leverage is smaller than one would hope either. So that's my cheerful message from the Warsaw Novotel, which is really nice. You get a great view of the whole city. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? and now it's time for a feature we like to call
1: you ask us
0: indeed and the question of the week is basically
1: should former politicians f off essentially <laughs> i'm boiling it down and the reason this has come about is for two different reasons first of all tony blair was on the andrew marr program, as was i i mean he was very much the warm-up act to me i think talking about his you know, basically we could kind of, we could stay in the EU if only we did something about immigration, guys, plan, which is, I think, not a great plan. But the other person is Hillary Clinton, who's this week published her memoir, What Happened, which I'm reviewing for next week's New Statesman, and which has been greeted by an inevitable outpouring of kind of like, oh, Hillary's trying to blame everybody but herself, like, who wants to hear from you? You lost, like, give over, you know, you're a discredited, ancien regime. And I think the parallels between the two are really interesting, because you're talking about two centre-left politicians, you can argue about exactly where, how much centre and how much left in that brew, who both struggled. And actually, Hillary Clinton gave an interview to Pod Save America, which is run by a former Obama staffer, saying that one of the difficulties that she had was against Sanders in the primary, was that she had to essentially run on Obama's record. She'd been part of that administration. She was running against somebody who did the Jeremy Corbyn thing of saying, you know, I'm going to represent a definitive, clean break from this compromised centre-left government. So, I do think I know we overplay the parallels between the two of them, but I think that is a kind of really interesting one about why it is that I think the left is worse at defending its victories. I think it's 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 prone to to self. Examination actually encouraged by the right. Often, I think that the right can often be more tribal about. You know, if you talk to your I average Tory about Thatcher, they won't be so eager to kind of completely cuss her out as you probably would find the average Labour person about Tony Blair.
0: Yeah, I mean, so this is where my strong view that it is mostly not that useful, other than in kind of learning method- successful campaign methodologies to look across at other countries, particularly not the states in the UK, where I think a lot of the time the shared language blurs many greater and more important cultural fissures. Not least, actually, the Democrats are a lot better at defending their record. If you look at failed primary campaigns, and to an extent, I think mostly the reason why uh, why Sanders founded on the rock of Hillary Clinton's massive lead among African Americans was actually partly uh, because of things that Hillary Clinton had done well and effectively in order to to win those votes positively. But it was also partly because he had called for Obama to face a primary. In 2004, one of the reasons why Edwards... Sorry, not Edwards. Edwards was the bottom of the ticket in... John uh,
1: Edwards, yeah. uh,
0: John Kerry uh, was the top of the ticket in that. One of the reasons why Kerry won was one of the mistakes Howard Dean made was he described the Clinton years as damage control and that irritated a lot of people actually democratic voters I think in the same sense that people get the wrong sense of what the median person who voted for Corbyn was based on like some angry people on Twitter Mm. the democratic electorate is is very much not that kind of angry person on Twitter and in some ways I can at least understand why people have taken that lesson in the UK because the angry people well there are lots of angry people on Twitter who voted for Yvette, Liz or Andy but in the main the angry people uh, on Twitter did at least vote for the winner in the Labour Party whereas I think it's a misread to see the average democrat as the supporters of the candidate who lost and to be honest did not lose that well right it was quite a, a an overwhelming defeat i think the book that i haven't read all of what's happened yet but i think that the the book has suffered because some of the uh, shall we say saltier passages have been the ones and have been shared the bits where she's more reflective about herself and what she thinks got wrong which are more interesting have not been i think it possibly would have benefited if she'd waited another year and thought more of it through there i are-
1: think that is but i think if you compare it with something like michael ignatiev's fire and ashes yeah. which is a reflection on his career in canada that was five years after and actually how long was a journey after
0: three because he to didn't want to like or the yeah, the caustic
1: balm of love over Gordon Brown. Yeah, I do think that is a trouble of it being, well, the wounds are still really fresh. It's not a historical book. It still feels like very much part of a, a live argument. But I thought it was more interesting, the bits I've read so far, and I'm still playing through it. A, I think it, it gives her personality better. And I think that's a really interesting thing about the fact that she was attacked so relentlessly for being overly controlled. And actually, you can see that that was an act in some respects. And I can, I can see why that she did it that kind of relentless discipline but it was it was undoubtedly a problem and one thing that she says on the podcast you know she could go back in time to just before she announced in her speech and tell us how something you know don't you can't run a conventional campaign against you know essentially two populists i know we're not allowed to use the word populist see the previous
0: but sentence, i mean i think but
1: two people who didn't expect to win right
0: i think the thing is is that in some ways the the slight weirdness to me about the whole Thing right is she's not going to run again. Her political career is over. It is primarily of use and of value as a, a historical source that will be interrogated, and we will weigh it against the inevitable other accounts of of that campaign and what went wrong. And we will also, I imagine, so the, the fascinating thing I think right is that because the margin was so small, you can point to lots of things that the Clinton campaign was the victim of than if it had been different, it would have won. You can point to lots of mistakes that the Clinton campaign made. That if it had not made it would have it would have won, but weirdly all of those do come together to an election which does basically look exactly like the historical trend line, which is for given the state of the economy, given for the generic Republican.
1: I do think there are definitely some things to take away from it though, like um, something that Evan Osnos, the New Yorker, said to me when I was writing about fake news and balance that. Donald Trump was allowed to call in to Sunday shows and essentially just gob off about whatever he wanted to once he was an officially established candidate. So there was this level where he was treated as a a media personality and they were none of the you know i think that's something that, that if i were hillary clinton i would still have a grievance about is that she was treated like a serious candidate he was treated like a, a kind of a circus sideshow right up until the end and that was very flattering to him that played absolutely to his strengths
0: yeah I, I think my instinct is though in general i always feel any lesson than a centrist or center left or you know or, you know however far left you go campaign whenever one of the lessons it takes is like the media, the, the media was beastly to us it's just like it's true but i just don't think it's a useful starting point i think the question with blair is very different because blair's intervention in the eu debate is not primarily a historical document it is an attempt to influence the existing debate i think you know ultimately like as an embattled pro-european i do get a bit annoyed at people's refusal to take any help than they can get i think john major was a pretty rubbish prime minister but actually like it is very important and i think it will
1: yeah, he was still involved in peace negotiations with Northern Ireland, and therefore I'm kind of interested in what he thinks I about also what do, Brexit might do. to I yeah, I also think issue. even
0: if it had been seven years of unadulterated failure, which Northern Ireland decided it mostly was, you, you they, he's
1: still been in the chair, right? And like also he has you, a relevant life. It's experience. kind of one
0: of those things where just like sometimes you've just got to kind of like take the. Yeah, it's a bit like um, I'm sure, at least some of the celebrities who endorsed Jeremy Corbyn on Twitter and on Facebook, which obviously did help and did create this sense that he was have got slightly questionable tax arrangements. But you know what? Who cares? It's 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 all fuel in the tank. And the most important thing in British politics, in my view, is reminding people that yes, we had a referendum, and it's right than the outcome of that referendum be enacted, just as it's right after the 2015 election that George Osborne tried his disastrous, and seeing as I think you can draw a direct line between the 2016 budget and at least some people voting to leave, it's perfectly right than, than he was able to implement that. However it was a mistake on the part of three of the four leadership candidates in 2015 to go maybe everything we know about economics isn't true and actually a more uh, regressive and a steer way is the way forward because it's just not the case and with the with the eu yes brilliant right the, the outers won the referendum congratulations know, yeah, pat yourselves on the back but actually it's important to retain the argument that if you are concerned about the pressure on wages and prices caused by the pound falling against the euro. It's quite hard to resolve that if we stay outside of the EU. If you're concerned about our low productivity, ditto, right? Like, you, it's important to keep that argument alive. I think in this specific case, Blair was returning to a failed strategy of how you manage discontent with the free movement of labour, which was under New Labour to insert more and more cruelty into the bits of the system you could control, right? So you, you made it even more unpleasant for people from outside the EEA to come through customs and then there's this idea of like oh well if you restrict the right of people to claim welfare yeah my instinct seeing as the economic argument in favor of free movement right if, if anything the problem with free movement is it is restricted to just 28 countries yeah to be all like Hillary at the Goldman speech like free open borders right I
1: think you're a citizen of the world right there Steve. um
0: seeing as the the problems with free movement are economically just open and shut right it is a good thing. I think suggesting that the solution to win support for it is saying, oh, well, we'll pull a policy lever to restrict it is probably a misread, because if it was about tangible conditions on the ground in terms of how immigrants are treated coming in, people would support it.
1: Yeah, I agree yeah. with you. I think the most I think the most important thing about that Blair alternative... I mean, Medhi used to use this phrase all the time in his columns. Tina, you know, there is no alternative. And one of the kind of things you can do when you're in charge and you run the government, exactly as you were talking about... Osborne economics is you can say no 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 this is common sense I'm in charge of what's common sense and there's a huge value to having somebody with big name recognition going just kind of pop this out there that I still think it was a bad idea and we shouldn't have done it like that is a useful thing to stop you being kind of gaslit into this idea that you're not allowed to say you know that you were against it or it's unpatriotic to say this business is moving its headquarters to Frankfurt hmm, wonder if you be worried about that and I think that's where the value of that intervention lies. <laughs> You've been listening to the New Statesman Podcast with me, Helen Lewis, and my co-host, Stephen Bush. We're recorded by India Bork and produced by Caroline Crampton. Why not go to see Seriously at the London Podcast Fest this autumn? You can find out more at either Seriously, that's pod.com forward slash London Podfest, or look at our new Twitter feed at NS underscore podcasts. And we have a new podcast coming down the line, Imagine Your Excitement, called The Back Half. See what we've done there. It's about the back half of the magazine, where you'll find all of our coverage of arts, books, theatre, food, drink, nature, and so on. Hosted by Tom Gatty and Kate Mossman. We are on acast.com forward slash the back half and coming soon to iTunes. <laughs>